Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Be encouraged. You are going to fail. Does that make sense to you? If it doesn't, just hold on. I'll try and lead you through that. In the 23rd verse... At that 16th chapter, it reads like this. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Seems very straightforward, doesn't it? But within this little passage, there are some interesting elements that I can outline for you. And the first element is this, that there is the implication there that the disciples of Jesus are going to have to learn how to trust the Father. They trust Jesus. They've learned to trust him. He has proven himself trustworthy. But now Jesus is passing the baton. He is going to send the Holy Spirit to guide them and lead them. And the Father is going to be looking out for them. And Jesus is telling them, you can trust the Father. He is also teaching them about the Father heart of God, which they had not understood previous to this. So imagine the perspective of the disciples. They walked with Jesus. They trained under him. They learned to rely on him. If they were hungry, he could produce food out of nothing and feed them. If they were in danger, he could calm the danger. They learned to trust him. And he had certainly taught them how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They understood how to pray. But what we have to grab a hold of is the fact that they had come to understand that they were walking with God incarnate, God in the flesh. The fact that they were means that they had a direct line to God. How much more direct does it get than to walk with Jesus? And they begin to believe that he was indeed the Son of God. And they still prayed to the Father because in the model of the Lord's Prayer, they had been instructed to pray, Our Father, and address him. And they had also become very comfortable with the convenience of relying on Jesus in the flesh to provide everything for them. They didn't have to pray down enough food to feed the multitude because Jesus, God in the flesh, just took care of it. They didn't have prayer meeting over that. They didn't have to petition the Father for a miracle to pay their taxes because Jesus, God incarnate, was there. He just took care of that. They didn't have to plead with the Father, please send some help against this stormy weather 
because Jesus was there in the boat with them. But things were going to change. God was dwelling among them. And when Jesus left, they're going to still pray. But Jesus wants to reassure them, you can trust the Father. And calling him Father, help them to understand that a good father takes care of his children. Now, one of the things that's become painfully obvious is there are some people who have had a very bad experience with their father. They project that into the heavenly father. If their father has been mean to them, abusive, oppressive, they can't get over the feeling that somehow this heavenly father has these fits of anger from time to time too. And if you cross him at the wrong time, that you could be in danger. You could be a subject of his anger, his wrath, his judgment. It's unfortunate. Sometimes the only thing we understand about fathers and what we experience down here is what we come to expect from the heavenly father. But the difference is that he is a good father. He's a perfect father. And whatever bad experience you've had with fathers here on earth, that's not your heavenly father. So they were comfortable taking their needs to Jesus, but now they need to learn to be comfortable in taking their needs to the father because Jesus was not always going to walk with them. So he says, you can trust the father. The second thing he tells them is when you pray to the Father, pray in my name. Now, I want you to understand, people, that's not a formula. But you'll find some legalistic people that want, are more interested when you pray in checking your grammar than listening to your heart. You've got some people that would potentially, when you get done and you just simply close and say amen, they will make a big deal and say, you didn't say in the name of Jesus. Like God is in heaven with this grammar book checking you to make sure you said it right. It's not formulized. God knows your heart. And if you just don't happen to say it exactly according to somebody's formula that they've derived, God still loves you. God still hears you. God still cares. God can answer prayers. And it doesn't have to be every prayer that we end up saying, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Now, we do that. I do that. I grew up with it. And I don't mean to criticize that when we do it. But what I do mean to say is that if we get to the point where we think, we think that makes the difference between whether God hears us and loves us and answers prayer or not, then we become legalistic about it. The reason that we should be doing it is because it is simply a verbal reminder that we understand the way that Jesus opened up for us to access the Father. If we don't articulate that every time, no big deal. But it is a testimony. It is an oral spoken testimony that we understand approaching the Father and gaining an audience with him has to do with not using the proper words, but having the proper relationship with his Son. 
So when Jesus said, if you pray in my name, what he was implying is, if you are in proper relationship with me, then you can effectively pray to the Father, and he will hear you. He will listen to you. It's like in this world, sometimes people will send you maybe to the store to buy something, any kind of store to buy something. And they say, and when you get there, tell them, I sent you. You've had that happen to you. So when you show up, it's like you say, well, so-and-so sent me. And how many of you have done that and you get a, a blank stare? <laughs> like these people must have really thought they were important. I come in here and mention the name and they say, Who? Or how many of you have really had success with that? When you, when you drop a name, like when you say, so-and-so sent me, they're going to scramble around and say, let's give this guy the best deal in the house because we know the name. Well, we wish it worked like that, don't we? But Jesus is saying, you know, if you have the right relationship with me, it's like, the name, Jesus sent me. And the Father says, well, that makes all the difference in the world. Well, it does make all the difference in the world. But the difference is this, is he knows your relationship with Jesus. You don't have to mention it. It's not a technicality that when you pray, you say, by the way, your son sent me. Jesus, uh, God can say, the Father can say, I know. I'm way ahead of you. I know your heart. I know your relationship with him. But the significance is this. Praying in the name of Jesus is praying in right relationship with Jesus so God the Father understands and honors that. Then he says, ask anything in my name. And I've covered this before in talking about prayer as well. That's a real exciting thought. But I'm going to put it this way. Ask anything, but don't expect everything. We have to keep this in context, like I explained to you several weeks ago when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. There's nothing in this context that even remotely suggests that Jesus inexplicably quits talking to his disciples about how they have to learn to adjust to ministering without him physically there to guide him, and then suddenly offers this carte blanche petition that they can use to gain personal wealth and comfort that would be totally out of context for him to be training them for that hour when he's going to be physically gone from them and here's how you're going to suffer. I mean, here's how you're going to suffer through persecution and endure. But by the way, if you all want a new gold-plated chariot, just ask for it. See, it doesn't follow in the flow of the context. But what Jesus is saying is you're going to be making your way without my physical presence. But if you need anything, you can ask the Father, and he'll be sure to provide it for you. So it's within the context of serving God effectively, of successfully battling against the troubles and the trials and the opposition that will come against you in trying to minister for him, live for him, and work for him. So he says, direct your petitions to the Father. Ask anything. In other words, what he's saying is, you don't have to fear the Father being insulted or angered by the fact that you ask for something that maybe he's not going to give. We go back to the example of our role as parents. 
If our children ask for something that we have no intention to give them, we don't become violent. We just simply tell them no. We don't disown them. We don't chew them out. We just simply say, no, you can't have that, or we're not going to do that. We can't afford that. It's not appropriate. But how come we fear God so much sometime in thinking if we ask the wrong thing, what's he going to think? Well, Jesus is allaying our fears. He said, you can ask anything. He won't get mad at you, but he may not grant it. So you can ask in comfort. You can ask in confidence that he's okay. He understands that sometimes we don't ask for things that that we're necessarily going to get, but he's not going to be angry with you. Sometimes the answer is no, and we all understand that. But that's what a good father does. He watches out for us. He makes sure that we have what we need. He blesses us with things sometimes we want, and he helps guard us from having things that we don't need. Once in a while, I've gotten things I didn't need, I'm not sure if God gave it to me to teach me a lesson or if he just let me go go about securing that to myself on my own so I could learn my own lesson that I didn't wait on him. How many of you have owned some white elephants in your life? Was that God allowing you just so you'd learn or was it you just getting ahead of God? I don't know. It doesn't make any difference. White elephants are not fun. When my wife and I got married, I was the proud owner of a 1963 GMC Greyhound bus, 4106 V8 diesel engine. Half converted on the inside because I didn't have enough money to completely convert it. And my bride, that was her home. Oh, I feel so rotten telling that. My goodness. She said she loved it. What a wonderful wife she was. And I tried to sell that thing, and diesel had gone from 30 cents a gallon to over a dollar a gallon within just a year's time. From the time I bought the bus, before I got it sold, the price of diesel tripled. So when I pulled up to the pumps, and I had a 160-gallon tank on there, and I filled it up, and that was over $150 because I wasn't on completely empty or $140. That's a lot of money for somebody who was making $3,000 a year. Tried to sell it. There wasn't a lot of market for that vehicle out there. And here I had taken a wife. And my responsibility had become greater. Now you're really desperate. Lord, you've got to help me sell this. And I can just imagine God said, why'd you buy it in the first place? Did I tell you to buy that? We finally managed to get it sold. Got a little apartment and felt halfway normal. The apartment actually had a bathroom. The bus didn't. 
that's tough whenever you get out ahead of God. I'm so glad I have a heavenly father that if I listen to him and he says no, I don't have to own white elephants. I just got to learn to listen to him. He'll take good care of you if you listen to him. The 29th verse, Jesus' disciples said, Now, you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things, that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Jesus told his disciples in the 25th verse, the time would soon come when he would reveal things that they had not yet fully comprehended. And the disciples responded by saying, right now, you're doing that. Jesus said, the time will soon come. They said, right now, we, we, can, we can finally understand you. Before, you talked in parables and mysteries, and we, we couldn't understand half of what you were telling us. But right now, we get it. We understand. You're talking clearly. Why didn't you talk clearly the whole time? And the thing about it is, they didn't understand. You know, it's that awkward moment when you think you know, and you say with all the arrogant confidence, I know that I know that I know. But the fact of the matter is, you don't know. You just think you know. And pretty soon you discover that after you have just been so proud of I know, you discover you didn't know. Now you feel like a fool. So that's exactly what the disciples did. They said, we get it. No problem. You're speaking straight to us now. Now we can understand you. And Jesus said, no, not yet. The time has not come yet when you can fully understand everything I'm trying to tell you. You just think you know. But you don't know. It would only be after the resurrection when the disciples would fully understand. It would only be when Jesus would spend 40 days with them, teaching them that suddenly everything they've been through makes sense. They understand his teachings. They understand the crucifixion. They understand the, the, the three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The resurrection and his post-resurrection teaching clarified everything for them. Now, one of the difficult aspects of pastoring is this. The number of people who look to the pastor for answers. Now, it's true. We have been prepared. We have been trained to have answers to many of life's common questions. And pastors can and should serve as a resource for their parishioners. See, pastoring is kind of like being a teacher at any grade level. And we have teachers in our congregation. When you get a new class, they're probably going to have the same questions over and over again that you have been fielding for years because you are an expert at that level. And these kids are just learning. And so very rarely do you get any child in there or a student at any age that really stumps you because you, the, the questions are predictable and you're well rehearsed. 
Well, with pastoring, having pastored for as many years as I have, most of the questions people have are pretty predictable. Most of them I have learned what the proper answer is. I can help you with a lot of things, but I cannot answer all of your questions. I just can't. I have questions I can't answer. And once in a while, you have questions I can't answer. Even in matters of theology, as much as I can provide answers to most of the questions people would ask, because they all think at pretty well a common level. Yet there are, there are questions in theology that I, I don't have answers to. There are questions in theology that skilled theologians don't have answers to. The finest theologians in the world do not all agree 100% on all theological questions. We don't have all the answers. So it had to be unsettling to the disciples for Jesus to tell them just after they had declared how clearly they see things now and how much they understand everything for him to say, you don't have it all figured out yet. You just think you do. We find ourselves equally frustrated sometimes when we think we have this good handle on things and, and suddenly we realize we still have these nagging questions that we never did get a satisfactory answer to. We struggle with that in, in all matter, uh, in all uh, facets of our life. Who among us has not asked God why? Now, apply it to any situation you've got. Is there anybody here really has never asked God why? Why have you made me the way I am? Why have you led me in the path you have led me so I am where I am in life today? Why am I in this situation? Why, God, did you allow me to be victimized? Why did you allow my loved one to die? Why do I struggle so much to simply live out my faith when it looks like everybody else has it all together? Why am I going through this trial? Job had those questions. Paul struggled with unanswered prayer. Yet I prayed three times for God to take this, this thorn out of my flesh, this spirit sent to buffet me. But God didn't take it away. There was a man whose prayers you would think he would know how to get them answered. But God said, I won't take it away, but I want to tell you something. My grace is sufficient for you. God wanted Paul to understand you may not get everything you ask for. God may not design life the way you want it designed. But he reminds you of grace. Grace that is sufficient. Grace that will help you walk through your trials and your struggles. So Jesus told his disciples, There's, there, there will come a time when you will understand. You will get the big picture. You will make sense of it all. And I believe we can all hold on to that kind of hope as, as well. God's grace will sustain me through this time in view of the fact that I don't understand it now and I can't give you answers. But his grace is going to carry me until that day when I finally understand why. 
Sometimes my wife and I sit down, we just have some pretty serious discussions about life and about ministry. My wife is, is well-skilled at asking questions I can't answer. She'll corner me. Why? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I had an answer for you. But why? I don't know. One of these days, I'm going to beat her to the punch. I'm going to ask why. But see, I'm, sp I'm supposed to be the one who has all the answers. And I don't. But I can hold on to the hope that one of these days, I'm going to understand. Jesus said in the 31st verse, do you now believe? A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered to each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, and yet I'm not alone for the Father's with me. I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace, but in the world you have trouble, tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And that's where I get the title of my sermon from. The disciples say, we get it now. No, you don't get it. You haven't arrived. As a matter of fact, here is the ugly truth of the matter. You're going to fail me. You're going to desert me. I'm going to be left all alone except for the fact that the Father never leaves me. You are going to scatter. You're going to fail. Man, that's tough. When God reveals that you're about to fail him. What do you do? You argue with him and say, it's not so. I'll never fail you. I'll never leave you. Peter tried that. It didn't work. You can't argue with God. You get the bad news. You're going to fail. There are things we know we don't know. Don't ask me to build you a nuclear reactor. I know that I don't know how to do that. Number two, there are things that we know that we know. Most of those things for me are in the past. It's a matter of recorded history. It can't change. And then the third is there are things that I only think I know. And boy, does it come as a, as a surprise to me when I discovered I didn't know anything. And Jesus kept asking Peter the question, do you love me? And you can almost see the attitude of Peter. Well, of course I love you. Are you sure you love me? I know I love you. Do you love me? I said I love you. But do you love me? And Peter became grieved. What is wrong? I think Peter began to realize when God pressures you that hard, maybe God knows something you don't know. 
Maybe God knows me better than I know me. Maybe Peter should have been asking God, well, I think I know, but would you tell me, do I love you? You know. I don't know. I think I do. What are you preparing me for anyway? Jesus told Peter, you're going to betray me before the cock crows. And Peter said, now some things I know and some things I don't know, but I can tell you this, I know I will never betray you. Until he's cursing and swearing, I don't know the man, and he hears the cock crow. And he says, well, I guess I didn't know. And God knows. We simply don't know ourselves as well as God knows us. We simply don't understand everything the Spirit's trying to teach us. Until in the process of time, it becomes clear to us what the Spirit's trying to teach us. That's why we have to walk in humility and patience. That's why we gladly receive the grace that God offers. And imagine the reaction of the disciples when Jesus told them the time is coming very soon. You're going to be scattered. You're going to desert me. You're going to go back to home. You're going to feel like quitting. And you're going to leave me virtually all alone. Now, it's bad enough when people point out my past failures. But when God points out my future failures, I don't know how to deal with that. It's so discouraging. It's the kind of thing that drives us to despair when we say, well, if that's the way it is, if I'm doomed to fail, what's the logical conclusion? Why try? How many of you know you're human? <laughs> I'm just checking to see if you're awake. How many of you know you're human? How many of you know humans fail? How many know if you live long enough, you're going to fail again? Congratulations. Welcome to the human race. I prophesy over you now. You're going to fail. Don't get discouraged. Don't say, so why should I try? Because Jesus told them why they should try. Actually, it's an excellent question because it's a question that frail human beings should ask. But it's also a question that the enemy is going to batter us with. The enemy is going to say, you're a failure. You're a loser. Why do you even bother to try? That's the question that has discouraged so many people through the century and caused them to completely surrender. And Jesus ran the risk when he told his disciples in those last few moments he had with them here on earth, when I leave you, you're going to fail miserably. He ran the risk of them becoming so discouraged that they would say, then why should we even try if the die is already cast? If it's already... When Jesus gave his response, you can take from his words, first of all, you're not really alone. God never leaves you. God never forsakes you. Number two, you have to understand in Jesus' response to that, he said, the reason, the reason I told you that you're going to fail me, I told you this so you could have peace. And it's like, oh, yeah, thank you, God. I got it now. Got the peace. Got the peace. I'm going to fail. Peace is all over me, God. But the reason you have peace, because God tells you, you might fail, 
You might stumble. You might falter. I told you that so you could have peace. Because in the world, you have tribulation. So why do I have peace, God? I'm going to fail. The world gives me troubles. Why am I going to have the peace? Because I have overcome the world. Jesus basically said you're going to get a few wounds. See, in the world you have tribulation. You fight constant battles. I do, you do. Friends, this is not a cakewalk. I fight spiritual battles every day that I live. I have the enemy parked on my doorstep every day of my life trying to tell me, you just might as well give up. He has the resume, uh, he has the resignation all typed up for me. All I have to do is sign on the dotted line at any time. Go ahead and quit. It's not worth the struggle. Now that's just from a pastor's perspective, but I know the enemy is working on you too as well. And he's constantly badgering you. Why try? It just doesn't seem like it's worth all the effort. But this is not a garden stroll. This is not a cakewalk. You are on a battlefield, and there's war going on all around you daily. You're right in the middle of the war. And Jesus said you're going to get wounded from time to time. You might take a bullet once in a while. You might even go down, but you can't give up. You can't quit. You have to keep going. You have to get back up. If you get discouraged because you have to fight constant battles and you get discouraged because along the way you lose a couple of those battles, the problem is if you give up, you won't be able to celebrate the victory at the win. You have to get up. You have to keep going. You can't quit because at the end there's going to be a victory celebration. You see, the battle the war doesn't depend on the independent battles you face. The war depends on Jesus saying, I've already won it. I have overcome. All you've got to do is get to the winner's circle. See, just because I have a failure doesn't mean the whole plan of God has gone down the tubes. doesn't mean God has lost the war. It just means I'm a warrior who's taken a wound once in a while. But somehow, someway, I've got to find the courage to get back up and get back in the fight and reach the end where God says it's celebration time. I know maybe you struggled, but be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. And Paul says, for I'm not proclaiming myself, but Christ Jesus as Lord and myself a slave of yours for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in my heart to give me the light of the knowledge of God's glory reflected in the face of Christ. Now notice that's, that's the gift. That's the precious prize that Paul said had been given to him, that light 
of the knowledge of God's glory. And so Paul says, but I'm keeping this jewel. What jewel? That jewel of that precious knowledge of God's glory, the light of God's glory. He said, I'm keeping that jewel in an earthen jar. And the picture that he draws there is so powerful, so dramatic. A cheap earthen vessel, so easily cracked, so fragile. And this precious gift from God had been deposited in him, an old clay pot. You don't keep your prized possessions in fragile vessels. But God deposited it in this clay pot, this jewel. He says it's in this earthen jar to prove that it is the surpassing power is God's and not mine. In other words, there's nothing about that, that fragile pot that can boast of anything except that God has deposited this precious gift in it and sustained that vessel. All the glory goes to God. And then we get into this part of the passage that has a cadence to it that is just so inspiring. Paul says, on every side, I'm hard-pressed, but I'm never hemmed in. I'm always perplexed, but I'm never to the point of despair. I'm always being persecuted, but I'm not deserted. I'm always getting a knockdown but never a knockout. You see, that's where we are, people, in God. The enemy can knock you down. You feel like giving up. But you have to understand, when God is motivating you, when God is with you, it's not a knockout. You can avoid the ten count. You can get back up again. You have to get up again. It's not so bad that you fall down as long as you get back up. God knows that we fall sometimes. He told us you're going to win a few and you're going to lose a few. But he told us that so we could have peace. Realizing we're not the total failures that the enemy tries to make us out to be. We have peace because we understand that, first of all, you're not going to win them all. Not on a personal level. We have peace because we realize the war doesn't depend on our perfection. We have peace because we know that the final outcome really depends on Jesus. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The only thing we're responsible for is to keep going so one day we can stand in the winner's circle, so one day we can personally be a part of that victory celebration. Friends, don't give up. Be encouraged. You're going to fail, but Jesus never fails. And he'll carry you 